The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Our guest today, John Pavlovitz, is a writer, pastor, activist, committed to equality, diversity, and justice, both inside and outside faith communities. He's the author of Bigger Table, Hope and Other Superpowers, Low, and Stuff That Needs to Be Said. His newest book is If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Humans. John Pavlovitz, welcome to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thank you so much. It is wonderful to be with you. Well, I really appreciate you, you know, giving us your time. I think we'll let the, the, the listeners know what's going on with you at the moment. You want to tell us what, what your big plan is for the weekend? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a good time going on. Um, I guess about eight weeks ago, I wasn't feeling well after about with COVID and did some blood work and... Uh, Hormones were all over the place, and my doctor said, well, you know, it could be, but it probably isn't this particular type of tumor in your pituitary at the base of your brain, but don't be worried. And then he said, let's do a brain MRI, and he also said, don't be worried about that. And that confirmed that it was indeed this particular type of usually benign tumor, and then he ordered more blood work to find out if it required surgery, which it does. So um, tomorrow... In just about uh, 12 hours or so, I will be taking care of that and seeing what the weekend looks like after that. <laughs> well, we, we all wish you well with the surgery. Thank you. Uh, all right. So try to put that out of your mind while I come up with some <laughs> absolutely distracting questions. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> to, to engage you with. You know, I, I do want to talk about the book. I mean, that was really the impetus for the conversation. But I get your newsletter. I read a lot of your material, and I wanted to start by asking you about being a pastor. Given that you seem to be engaged in an endless and, to me, futile effort to remake your church, (laughs) tell us why you entered the ministry and why you haven't yet given up on it like I did. Well, I guess it depends on the day if I've given up or not, but (laughs) my journey was you know, ministry for me was completely unexpected. I was raised in a Italian Roman Catholic family predominantly and had a pretty strong faith, but had this God who adored me, who I was also terrified of. And as I drifted from that faith in college, um, really was far from organized religion. And it was only um, about 24 years ago when my wife and I were going to be married we couldn't find a local faith community that would marry us. And a little Methodist uh, church uh, female pastor said, uh, why don't you come to our building and see what we're about? And then we can talk about it. 
and uh, had a wonderful experience, really felt connected to that community and what they were doing there. And slowly got, you know, he started volunteering with teenagers and part-time youth leader, and then finally was offered a position to, and I had the choice to leave my career as an art director and do ministry full-time, which is what I did. So it was completely unexpected. And that was just, yeah, about 24 years ago. And why I don't bail on the whole thing, I think I'm in a fortunate position because I don't have a local congregation. I have this really disparate virtual community, and that allows me to be exactly the kind of minister I want to be and say what I feel like I need to say. And so I I'm fighting with and for my faith tradition often at the same time. Yeah, I like that. You're fighting with and for your faith tradition at the same time. So so actually, we're, we're more similar. You don't have a local, in-person community. You can always just turn off the messaging on Twitter and avoid all the negative <laughs> right, stuff that yes. people want to, want to dump on you. Yeah, and that was my story, by the way, real quick, is was that I as I went down this road of ministry and my and the churches got larger and my profile got bigger, I started to realize there were a lot of tensions in me between the person I thought I should be and the pastor I was expected to be. And that tension is really what began to weigh on me as I walked down that road and then I realized in a certain setting, hey, I'm gonna have to be either be an authentic pastor or an employed pastor at this congregation. And so that's led me to this place where you and I are standing. Yeah, I ended up having to create my own congregation. Nobody right. would hire me. <laughs> I mean, I didn't even go to interviews, but I was told in advance by my seminary <laughs> that if I was honest about what I believed and how I understood Judaism, that you're never gonna get a job. So I <laughs> well, said, yeah, well, case, I'll just start my own. In my case, it was getting to a new church after having been at one for 10 years, having an equity of trust and relational capital. I could kind of nudge people. And then I got to a new, new church. And I like to say that five months in, I heard God calling me to leave that church. And it came in the form of my pastor's voice saying, you're fired. And then it was easy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. God, God does not work in mysterious ways in that case. It was pretty yeah. cut and dry. It was a Starbucks on a Thursday afternoon. Yeah. Uh, there you go. So in, in the book, you talk about this notion of unboxing God. And it seems to me that one of the primary aims of any religion is to place God in a box. Mm -hmm. And the box is defined by, by that religion. I mean, I mean, the Jewish God fits the Jewish box and chooses the Jewish people. And the Christian right. God fits the Christian box. And, you know, those who would be saved join the church. To truly unbox God, it seems to me, is to realize that God can't be boxed at all and that any God in a box isn't God with a capital G, but only an, an idol. So is this what you have in mind, a, a really unboxed, unboxable divine reality? Yeah, I think what happens is, you know, in the book I say the first problem is small religion is the real problem. And the second problem is that all religion is small religion, that it's all doing our best with words to capture the ineffable. And that eventually we can adore our tradition and respect it and find great meaning there. But ultimately, it's okay to admit that our tradition may not be large enough for whatever this entity is. And to be okay with that, to not be threatened by the idea, because over and over, I say in the book, if God is God-sized, then, hey, I think we're going to be okay here. And uh, so there should be a fearlessness and a less of a territorialism about your own tradition. I, you know, when I read the Hebrew prophets, I mean, not 
all of them and not everything that they all say. But a theme that runs through the Hebrew prophets is unboxing God, just to stick with the term. Uh, for example, in, in um, Isaiah, I'm going to make sure I get my remember this right. Isaiah 66 in the beginning, verses three and four. Uh, Isaiah or God, you know, talks about if you slaughter an ox in order to, you know, for your ritual, it's like you kill a person. If you're sacrificing a lamb, it's like you're breaking the neck of a dog. He just goes through these things that would be horrifying to his listener, to Isaiah's listener. But they're all the things that they think God wants them to do. And then, uh, and I, I wrote down the last part of it. God says, I also will choose to mock them, those who do the ritual things, and bring upon them what they fear. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they didn't listen. Sounds like Matthew 25, you know, doing yes. it for the least of these. But they did what was evil in my sight and chose what did not please me. And he's talking about what was at that time corporate Judaism, you know, the priestly Judaism. I, I think if you modernized it and addressed it to rabbinic Jewish corporate uh, structures, the prophets would be saying the same thing, that this is not what God wants. Micah says what God wants is to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Do you get a sense, and, and if, well, I should never ask a yes or no question, to <laughs> what extent do you see Jesus as paradigmatic God unboxer? Yeah, I think right away of Jesus you know, saying that he's got this new wine and you've got these old wineskins and this is brittle and you're not, you're not pliable enough. Your mind needs to be pliable enough. Your heart needs to be open enough to stretch to a place where you don't imagine your creator calling you to. And I see that sort of his ministry was doing the same thing. It was always inviting in the kept out and always pulling people from the periphery. So he was stretching people to a wider embrace than they were comfortable with. He does it, I, it seems to me, that he, you know, with what information we get from a printed text, right. that he does it with a little more, oh, I don't know, grace maybe than, than Isaiah. You know, he's not, <laughs> he's not hitting you over the head with it uh, the way the Hebrew prophets do. But he is making the similar kind of point. What happens, I, 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 I'm suggesting, is that after you get a prophet, whether it's the Hebrew prophets or, or Jesus, if you look at him as a prophetic figure, you then get a new institution that undoes what the prophet was trying to do, reboxes right. God in the, in the image of the new institution. Is that how you see what happened to Christianity, what makes it, like all the other religions, too small? I do, and I even see in, in Paul and in the, in the early church in the New Testament, Paul had to essentially become a heretic to his former self. And he had to really change the entire way that he, the lenses through which he viewed human beings and God. And so I think religion at its best is always allowing itself to be reinvented and, and infused with uh, new energy. And I think that's something that we resist many of us, because if you, if you have a, if you love a tradition you can often become come beholden to that tradition to the point where you are no longer you no longer have that openness that I think a real true growing spirituality requires. Yeah, right. That it it becomes it becomes dead. It becomes imitative. Right. Um, yes. And and for me, there's a 
you know, I go back to my Catholic roots and every once in a while when I'm in a Catholic church, there is a beautiful sort of muscle memory that I experience. And there are things about that, that ritual and the tradition that is so beautiful. And yet there are things in there where you can see there, it's difficult to invite the present into that sometimes. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm speaking completely as an outsider, but Eucharist intrigues me uh, on a lot of different levels. I mean, I can't imagine anything more intimate than taking God into your your mouth, eating the divine. I mean, it's got all this anthropological uh, yes. weirdness to it, but but it seems very, very powerful. And yet, and I haven't done this now since, you know, COVID started, but when I would go to churches and I would watch people take communion, it's almost like, and this is not true for everybody, I get that it's a broad brush, but if there were word bubbles over their head and they kneel down and the priest, you know, offers them the body of Christ, you could almost see in the world word bubble that they're thinking, what, this again? <laughs> I had this last week. What else is on the menu? There, there's just, it, it, to an outsider, it seems like what could be more transformative? And yet it turns out, at least again, from an outsider's looking at, looking at it, it's it's highly performative rather than transformative. How do you get how do you get the the freshness into into back into it? Well, the, the challenge is you know you take something. That, the first book that I wrote, A Bigger Table, it was all about the table ministry of Jesus. All the times that he broke bread with people and shared a meal with them. And there's nothing we experience that's more intimate and beautiful and sacred. And for me, I think. Having an act like that, would if we could replicate that act, that communal part of it, but I think um, that's the only way that you can get fresh eyes to see that and, and have your heart be ready to experience it in that way. But you talk about something, you know, being a 10 or 11-year-old and having to think about, okay, you're eating this God. I mean, you, you talk about the mind of a fourth grader, how that, what that does to you, and it's, uh, it's a pretty jarring idea. So, well, how does it feel, if you can remember? Well, I, it felt terrifying, especially because you combine that with the sacrament that I was raised in of um, confession, where you have to go and, and tell the priest, you know, you're, you're, all these things. And I remember I had a, two versions of my sins. I had the ones I was going to tell the priest because that felt like they were good and serious enough that I could get away with it. But there was stuff that I said, I can't tell him. So you talk about something that's that intimate and yet also fraught with guilt and worry. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I, I love the fact that in, in Hebrew, the word for fear and the word for awe are the same word. Yeah. So it can be terrifying, but it can also be awe-inspiring. And, and it, they may be, I was going to say flip sides of the same coin. They may actually be on the same side of, of the coin. Uh, but it, yes. it's, it's, su it's such a powerful, a powerful thing. And, uh, and really quickly, that, real, that idea, too, is something that I think in my tradition is often leveraged, that, that fear of God rather than the just wondrous awe that you experience when something that massive, the way you're in the Grand Canyon or you're at the ocean, where you just, that beauty is, is, heart, is um, welcoming and it's, and it's safe rather than something you should be running from. Yeah. Yeah, and then it becomes politicized, 
without do you a doubt. Give, do you give communion to President Biden? You know, do you, you know, I mean, yeah. That, I think that's why when you look at current studies of uh, millennials, Gen Z, you know, their approach to religion, they're really not interested because they look at it as it's just another form of politics. And right. the, the beauty, the enchantment of it is, is oftentimes lost. L- let, me, let me quote you something you wrote in the book that I really liked okay. and get your response to this. You're writing to the reader and you say, you were born without a box for God. You met God before you had a religious container. You experienced beauty and wonder without needing a church or a Bible verse or a pastor to explain it to you. And you don't need that now. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Then you go on to call people to embrace something bigger than their preferred box, which is what we've been talking about. But you say this isn't the same thing as telling people to abandon their box. But it seems to me that that's exactly what you're asking people to do, to move into a bigger box. How is it different? I think when I, I know that the reality for me is that I will never be able to completely jettison my tradition. Even if I wanted to, I'm cognizant of the fact that those values and those lessons are embedded in me. And so as much as I try to get a more expansive view of the divine, I'm honest with myself enough to know that there are going to be those things that I can't shake, but I'm going to take those and. And I think that's that and community that I want to build, that I love seeing people who are adventurous enough to say, I don't have to have an adversarial position with my former tradition or another or a new tradition. I can just welcome it all. And that's what I'm hoping can happen. But it's, it's, not, it's not easy at all. My sense, when, when I speak at churches or synagogues or, or other, other settings, when people are oftentimes comfortable in their respective boxes. My, my challenge to them, you most of the time, is not to leave your box, but to go deeper into the box, into the mysticism. One of the things that, I mean, in Judaism, Jewish mysticism is cool now, right? There's right. classes in Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy, and it, it's cool to be, into, to be in, if you're Jewish, right? To be, not even, if, not only if you're Jewish, but it's cool to be into Jewish mysticism. When I'm at a church and I bring up classic Christian mysticism, Hildegard of Bingham, Meister Eckhart, I mean, these amazing, um, well, mystics, let's just leave it at that, these amazing mystics in that tradition who, without getting rid of the box, have expanded the box uh, you know, as far as, as the mind heart can, can imagine, deepen the box as far as anyone can imagine, and have brought out the universal truth that each religion contains and articulates in its own way. The mystics, I think, all agree. Yeah. Is there a sense that, that the people you run into, the, the, 
you know, the Christians that you're working with, are they hungry for a mystical Christianity? I think the ones who are tend to right now not quite feel at home in many local faith communities. I think many local faith communities, they almost don't make time for that wonder and they don't make time for um, the messiness and the waiting of that. You know, I can remember being in a mega church and everything about our gathering was so scripted. And yet we were talking about this sort of spirit that encompasses and that can change and do all these things. And yet we really never simply trusted that. And so I think people are hungry for something that's that deep and that that's that beyond what they can reach. They want something that's just a little bit beyond their grasp that keeps them going. And right now, I think much of the church is about the business of God, the pragmatic exercise of religion. and. Um, we just don't make time for exploration of the deeper things. Yeah, which I think is such a shame. I mean, there yeah. is a worldwide, I mean, there's two global movements of, of Christian meditation. There's the Centering yeah. Prayer Movement, Father, uh, Father Thomas Keating and uh, Father Pendlerast, if I, Pennington, uh, Basil Pennington, uh, sort of created Centering Prayer. And then there's, the worldwide Christian meditation movement. And these are authentic Christian practices. Right. And, you know, they, they, they speak to a lot of people, but not in the local churches so much. Though, just to be fair, I, I do run into numerous centering prayer groups that do meet in churches, even if they're not supported by that, the specific church that provides them with, uh, you know, room for gathering. But right. it's, it's, Christianity is so much more rich than most Christians know, as is Judaism right. and other traditions. And I, and I think that's that's a great point to make because when we talk about movements and American Christianity is a very specific entity that I think very uniquely has kind of veered off the message and had mission drift. So it's that's even probably even more difficult to, because there are people throughout this country who have who agree with all of the things that we're talking about and yet they they feel like there is no home for them um, because the most of the high profile churches and denominations are moving away from that mysticism i think so yeah which is a shame so the the book your new book is called if god is love don't be a jerk right. so i'm assuming well i read the book so <laughs> it's a safe <laughs> assumption that when you say, if God is love, you're not leaving a lot of room for if God isn't love. I mean, the, the sequel would be, well, if God isn't love, <laughs> go ahead and be a jerk. Yeah, we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so what, how do you understand this notion that God is love? I think it's unique to Christianity. It certainly isn't a Jewish position or a Hindu or, uh, well, Buddhism is, doesn't have this kind of deity to, to deal with, or, or even, even in Islam. God is love is sort of a classic Christian trope. Right. How does that play? I mean, in your mind, I mean, what, what does that mean to you? For me, it means that for God to be having a defining character that is love, if that's true, and even really to, to be God, God has to be able to outlove me and outforgive me and outwelcome me. And so if I'm always aspiring to something that's just a little better and a little bit kinder, 
that I'm comfortable with, that's the road to the character of God. Um, for me, there's no other option. For me, a God who would place me here in a place I've never been, in a life I've never lived, in a day I've never experienced, there, that's asking a lot of human beings to then figure out how do I please or keep this God from being angry with me. And so I'm, I lean into the hope that God is benevolence first. And then that, that is the Christian trope, right? God is love. And so I'm speaking more to the people who think they have that figured out, and yet their expression of their religion is often marked by contempt for humanity and the planet. Right, right. I mean, they, the, the implication they often give is God is anything but love. Or their, right. their motto is, God is love. And I'm a jerk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, that's but right. God, or, God, or God is uh, telling me to be a jerk to you in love. Right, even, even worse. <laughs> uh, I, I live in a very Christian neighborhood, primarily Protestant, primarily uh, evangelical. And my neighbors take heaven and hell very seriously. Uh, they, have, and they, they seem to have a clear idea as to what heaven and hell is. And they're pretty sure they know where they're going. And, and, and I've had a number of people tell me with only, only love in their hearts that because I'm not one of them, I'm, I'm going to the other place that they're not yes. going. Uh, I, I'm assuming you're familiar with, with Rob Bell. Yes. So I think his, he has a book called If God is Love, and it's, it's a book about hell. And or Love, love Wins. Love, love Wins. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Right. Love Wins. And it, it, it's his book about hell where he says, uh, his problem with hell is not, he has no problem with Adolf Hitler burning forever in hell. What bothers him, he wrote in that book, is that Mahatma Gandhi is standing right next to him, mm, <laughs> next to Hitler. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So uh, I, as I remember the book, uh, Love Wins, hell is, there is no hell. There's no room for hell in a divine reality that is love. Is that true for you also? It is. I, I find the idea of hell incompatible with the God who's with a God whose character is love. Uh, be, you know, Jesus is teaching you know about forgiveness, and he's saying he says essentially every time that you're asked to forgive, you need to for, you need to forgive, and then every time you're asked again, you have to forgive again. So there cannot be that forgiveness cannot wear out, and yet the idea of hell to me is is God not living to those standards, not existing to those standards and saying, you're going to do something that is going to offend me so deeply that I'm going to close myself down to you. And I'm not going to offer the forgiveness that I'm asking you to offer one another. So that, that was a disconnect, even as a teenager that I couldn't quite uh, grasp. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen pastors say to one another, pastors from different denominations, uh, say to one another that the other is going to hell because their, um, their baptism practice isn't the right one, yeah. their um, list of, of, of what you have to believe to be in that denomination violates a different denomination, and therefore you're, you're going to hell. I mean, being a Christian is no, even a, even a devout Christian is no um, protection against going to hell if you're talking to a different kind of Christian who really yes, needs you correct. to go to hell. Yeah, most uh, people's idea of hell is it's it's very there's a 
it's a full, it's always full. And the, the place where they're, they're going is uh, there's only a few people. And that's the, you talk about the God box. It's, it, you know, it's God. Our, our tradition has the God box and then our denomination has the even better one. And our particular expression in this local community, you know, ours is the ultimate box. And that, that is just so uh, sad to me. It's such wasted energy. Yeah, ab- absolutely. It's, it's a complete distraction from the soul dimension of humankind and a complete addiction to the egoic dimension, I think. Yeah, that's right. So we're just about out of time. And I, and I want to ask you one more question. Uh, one of my favorite verses in the, the Bible, in the Torah, is uh, Genesis 12, 3. And that's where it says it's sort of God is speaking to Avram and Sarai before they become Abraham and Sarah and, and tells them to, to, to take leave of their, uh, their nation, not, you know, their nation where they're living, get rid you know, step away from their culture, their ethnicity, leave their parents' house and go to a place that God will show them. No map is provided, no tradition to follow. God is only going to let you know you got there when you got there, even though you have no idea how to get there. And what you do when you get there is you are a blessing. This is Genesis 12, 3. You are a blessing to all the families of the earth. And because it says all, it's, it implies both human and otherwise, mm-hmm. that you become, you, you engage with life in such a way as to be a blessing to whomever or whatever you're engaging with. And I'm wondering, or let me, let me put it this way. For me, the, the only way you can be a blessing to all the families of the earth with all the diversity that exists, and, and you can even just stick with, with human beings, the only way you can be a blessing is to be box-free. Because otherwise, you're just going to drag your box and either try to get the other person into your box or have a war of boxes. The, the reason Genesis 12, 3, be a blessing, follows 1 and 2, which is about getting out of your box, is because getting out of your box is a prerequisite for being a blessing. I don't think that's your, I, well, that isn't your position, but how would you wrestle with that reading of the text? I, for me, um... I think the the idea of um, how can I describe this? Even the word the word box can be too limiting. I think ultimately our theology is relational, and so whoever I am, however people experience my life, that has to be something that is more and more beautiful and more and more expansive. And if I can do that with a tradition, in you know holding tightly to that then that's that's okay but for me my my journey has been the restriction was the tradition it was a piece of that thing tethering me to um to the fear um i think you know the book is actually that fear and grief are at the bedrock of our barriers and mm-hmm. so if our religious tradition can pull us out of fear and out of that contempt for the other then I think it, you know, traditions are a wonderful thing. And um, that's, why, that's why this is so difficult, because some days I have this tradition that I've experienced so much joy from, and I want people to experience that. 
And yet I want to spare them the toxicity of that story. And I still don't know quite how to do that. And maybe that's because I'm still wrestling with both of those things. Well, we're glad you're still wrestling. We hope you'll still be wrestling after your operation. (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Our guest today, John Pavlovitz, is the author of If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Humans. You can learn more about John's work at his website, johnpavlovitz.com. John, thank you so much for talking with us on Spirituality and Health Podcast. What a joy to be with you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at Spirit Health Mag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. The Spirituality and Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.